Well, amen to that. That is the bedrock of all of our hope. And uh, while you guys are being seated, I'm going to ask that after the sermon we sing I Surrender All Again, instead of Church's One Foundation, we'll sing that at the members meeting. Okay? Great. That's how we do things around here. Um, I don't know what keeps you awake at night, not because your heart is anxious as... Uh, was one of the themes the Holy Spirit gave us in our time of prayer a moment ago. We're all tempted that way. But I'm not thinking about when you're anxious, but when you're burdened. The kind of thing that weighs heavy on you that's not a sinful thing. What is the heaviest thing on your heart? I was meeting with a brother in our church this week. We meet every Wednesday for discipleship together and it Really a joy, and this week we were joined by a new friend that I wanted to introduce to him and to get to know each other. We asked that good, kind of fillet you open question, what's your greatest joy these days and what's your greatest challenge so we can know how to pray for each other. If you've uh, ever met with me in the last few years, I've probably asked you that question. That's the way I try to gather prayer requests. And when it came my turn... I said on Wednesday of this week, my greatest challenge is sleeplessness. In fact, the previous two nights, I tossed and turned all night after I finally did fall asleep, and Tracy can attest to the fact that even my sleep wasn't good sleep, and uh, I say to you in a way that I hope encourages you so deeply, it's your fault. It is your fault. Monday night, the Lord knows I was burdened for a sister in our church, it just came on me unsuspectingly. Tuesday night, I was burdened for a husband and a wife. Last Saturday night, I was burdened so deeply I could hardly sleep, both from the, the Word, the sermon, but also a couple of precious ones in this faith family. And today's text has a lot to say about that. So I invite you to Hebrews chapter 13, and we'll pick up the reading in verse 17. Hebrews 13 Verses 17 through 19, hear the word of the living God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Father, we ask for Your rich blessing as we dance together now in Your Word. Teach us, Holy Spirit, and cause us to respond rightly. In Jesus' name, Amen. Those three verses can be divided according to God's instructions to two groups of people, church members and church leaders. And uh, each of those categories have several specific instructions and, and some of those overlap. And let's just take them in that order, it, God's instruction to church members. And let me just say right out of the gate that every believer is called to be united to a local church. There's no exception to that in the New Testament. You can't be a Lone Ranger Christian and even church leaders are first church members. So the instruction of church members is to, to every person in the church, including the leaders, and we'll see in a moment that the instruction to the leaders has massive implications for all the members. 
So first, God's instruction in these verses to church members. God gives very clear instruction for all church members and the assumption in the text, which has been explicitly stated in the previous 12 and a half chapters, is that every Christian is a church member. This letter is written to a local church. Okay. But because this sermon can come off as sounding very self-serving, I have, uh, as best, best I could, worked very diligently to prepare to let lots and lots of other people speak today. I'll be citing lots of sources, and I hope and pray that you'll dial in especially closely when we lean on the help of other spiritual giants who have thought about and have expounded this passage. It might be appearing like humility for a pastor to say, oh, no, 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 no. Don't submit to me. Submit to Jesus. But that's not humble at all. That's actually false humility. Humility is really putting ourselves underneath the authority of God's Word and doing what He says. And so... I will let others speak, but I will say as uh, I'm trying to report what I find right here in this chapter, I want to say confidently what God says. So what are church member responsibilities according to God? There are at least four that I find in this passage. They are, verse 17, obey your leaders. Verse 17, submit to your leaders. Verse 17, allow your leaders. These are pastors. I'll show that in a moment. Allow them to watch over your souls with joy. And finally, verse 18 and 19, pray for them. So obey, submit, allow them to care for you, and pray for them. One at a time, obey your leaders. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. That's black ink on white paper inspired by God. The little church that received this letter had been through some very, very difficult times. We know in chapter 10, that a number of them were put in prison for their faith. We also know that others in the congregation had lost their property, probably including their homes, that were plundered, destroyed, because they identified themselves also as Christ followers. But not only losing their property and having some of their dear friends thrown in prison for their faith, we also know that some of their pastors had died. We get that from verse 7 of chapter 13, which says, uh, remember those who spoke the word of God to you and considering the outcome of their faith, imitate their example, follow their example. So they had already passed away. So just think for a moment about the sorrow of one of the pastors, let, let, let's say a pastor that you loved and cared about deeply had died. So they've been through this valley of sorrow and here the author saying in verse 17, obey your leaders. The word in verse 7, leaders. The word in verse 17, leaders, is a reference to their pastors. John Calvin said, I doubt not, but what he speaks of are their pastors of the local church. So when a church has faithful leaders and they pass away, verse 17 is telling us uh, at first, our great God knows how to replace them. Nobody here is indispensable. God doesn't need any of us. This church is going to do perfectly fine when I'm dead and gone. Philip Edge Kim Hughes says concerning this call to obey your leaders, the recipients of this letter who have already been exhorted to remember and imitate the faith of their former leaders who have already died, verse 7, are now enjoined to obey their present leaders. 
So I love what God's doing here. We live in the day of personality, of cult. I mean, it is like, who's your favorite podcast? Okay, that's now the only person on planet Earth that God can speak to you through. Forget that nonsense. God's economy runs on regular. There are no impressive people here. We are very average. So whoever God gives you, so long as they're biblically faithful, we'll talk about that, obey them. Submit to them. Christ's church is not built on any man other than the only mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And according to Matthew 16, Jesus builds the true church on himself and on his gospel work. So if Grace Church is going to be truly biblical, not just making, up it, making it up as we go, then this church is going to be fine without any of your current elders. But so long as God has given us to you, you're called to obey. I want to say again, God does not need us. And the command to obey your leaders is obviously not a trump card that any pastor can pull out whenever he wants to to tell you to do whatever he says. That's nonsense. That's how Jim Jones was able to murder, eight, murder 800 of his followers in 1978 by ordering them to drink poison Kool-Aid. The verse is not God's demand that we heed and perform anything and everything that any pastor says. But what does it mean? Thank you, John Calvin. The author's concern in this verse is, quote, only with those who faithfully exercise their office. For those who have nothing except the title, and indeed those who abuse the title of pastor to destroy the church, deserve none of our reverence and none of our trust. So if a brother who is a pastor is leading according to Scripture with their words, and if they're seeking, newsflash, the best pastors in, on planet Earth, in any generation, in any culture, in any time, have about a C plus as their best. But if they're trying to serve faithfully, then you and I are both divinely ordered to obey them. That's what God says. The word obey in verse 17 is literally, it has this range, to be persuaded by them, to yield to them, to be bent toward honoring them, to comply with them, to have a confidence in them, and that's what God demands of you. So your first command is to obey your leaders. Your second, as church members, this is for every Christian, is to submit to them. Obey your leaders, verse 17, and submit to them. Submission to God-ordained authority is a very huge part of living the Christian life. So my favorite intro evangelism question is not, uh, if you die today, where will, you go to, where will you spend eternity? That's a good one. What would you say if you stand before God? That's a good one. But my favorite, uh, personal favorite is, who owns you? I hate the history of slavery in this nation. I hate it. It's egregious heinous, demeaning the image of God in every human being, sin. We repudiate that. We hate that. It's not surprising, though, that a lot of people hate the question, who owns you? White, black, glowing, purple, and neon alike all say, nobody owns me. What do you mean? I own me. I'm my own master. Wrong. Everybody's a slave. Period. Romans 6, you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. You are a slave. The only question is, who is your master? And God-ordained submission is a huge part of living the Christian life. Everyone is made to be under authority. 
When a centurion saw the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus said to that man, I have not seen greater faith in all of Israel. What would make Jesus say, that's the greatest faith? That centurion, century, 100 years, centurion, over a hundred soldiers, the centurion recognized that though he had authority over others, and himself was under the authority of others, looked at the Lord Jesus Christ and said in Matthew 8, my mind explodes, you're God, and yet you're still submissive to another? Even Jesus submitted Himself to His Father. Romans 13 tells every one of us, great to think about on a Memorial Day weekend, that you should subject yourself to governing authorities as God has directed you. Colossians 3, children, you're to submit yourself to your parents. Ephesians 5, wives, you're to submit yourself to your husbands. Submission is a huge part of living the Christian life. And every believer should be a member of a local church and submit themselves to their pastors. That's what this text tells us. Because we live in a day when there are such rampant abuses of the pastorate, it's vitally important to point out again, pastors have zero inherent authority. None. Now, I've noticed, especially living where I live, that many of my neighbors honor the pastor. I have benefited from the office of being a pastor, but I think I've benefited inordinately. There's no inherent authority in the man or the office. The authority is not vested in the pastor. That's not why you submit to them just because of them. It's not even in their position or office. It's in the Gospel Word of the Lord Jesus and the Gospel work of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18 We're all submitting to Him. And He designs, like children submitting to parents, that our submission to Him runs through faithful pastors. That's why at weddings I don't say by the authority that's vested in me, by the state of blah, 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 wherever I'm doing the wedding, or by the authority vested in me as a pastor of Grace Church. I hear that language. I'm not mad at anybody for using it. I just don't say it. I say by the, by the authority that is vested in me as a minister of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, I now pronounce that you are husband and wife. And that's something worth kissing over, right? So, Charles Simeon. You must judge how far the voice of the minister accords with the Word of God. And to that extent only are you bound to pay any attention to your minister's Word. And so far are you to be from receiving the Word of man implicitly and without examination that God says of you and requires of you, quote, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. 1 John 4.1 you are commanded by God, quote, to prove all things and to hold fast only to that which is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 It's not tacit endorsement of a man. It's not a cult. We follow Jesus. And we submit to faithful pastors. The Bible also clearly instructs us when we are not supposed to submit to them. Just like there are times that wives are not supposed to submit to their husbands. And there are times that children are not supposed to submit to their parents. The Bible has a lot to say about that. John Owen explained when we should not submit to pastors. Quote, it is our duty so to obey our leaders whilst they teach the things which the Lord Jesus Christ has appointed for them to teach. 
For unto God's truth is their commission limited. And we are to submit unto their work whilst it is exercised in the name of Christ according to His institution and by the rule of His Word and never otherwise. Dear friends, let us fully embrace. Do we really surrender all? Let us fully embrace the import of this verse because it contains one of God's favorite ways to minister to our souls. I constantly meet people because they find out I'm a pastor. I try to keep it secret. When I'm evangelizing somebody, I do not want them to know I'm a pastor. But it gets out there somehow or another. What do you do? Man, I've got all kind of crazy phrases. I'm a hedonism counselor. That's what I say. I'm a joy explosion philosopher. I mean, I got all kind of answers. I work for my father. I got all kind of answers. I don't want them to know I'm a pastor because I don't want them to snow me or blow smoke. But one of God's favorite ways to minister to our souls is to give us faithful pastors. Charles Simeon, when the word which is delivered to you is not only that which your minister himself came up with, but quote 1 Corinthians 15.3, he received it from the Lord because it's inscripturated. Then you must obey it as much as if it was delivered to you by God Himself in an audible voice from heaven. If you're living in submission to God's ordained authority in your life, and I tried to explain everybody, everybody is called to live in submission all the time, then if you're living in submission to God's ordained authority in your life, just like Jesus lived in submission to God's ordained authority in His life, then you're setting yourself up to be a happy person to live in God's world, God's way. But if you children refuse to submit to your parents, or you citizens refuse to submit to the governing authorities, or you Christians refuse to submit to your faithful pastors, then your fight is not against man. Kids, if you will not submit to your parents, your fight is not against your parents. Your fight is against God Himself. Because this is His command. So obey your leaders and submit to them. Number three, responsibilities of church members. Let your leaders watch over your souls with joy. Isn't that in verse 17? It's vitally important to see where the onus of the burden lies in the verse. Is it not fascinating to you that God tells us whose responsibility it is for our pastors to derive joy in their care for us? It's not the pastor's job, it's our job. The burden lies on the church member. Reading the verse clearly makes it, makes it obvious. The onus lies with us to let them care for us with joy. While it is certainly our pastor's job to watch over our souls, it is our job to make sure our pastors derive joy when they serve us. And again, every pastor is also obliged to obey this verse. That's why every church in the New Testament had a plurality of elders because every pastor needs a pastor. We're first church members. Joy is such a huge theme in Hebrews. Chapter 10, when you got your property plundered, what'd they do? Write petitions, go down to City Hall, bang on the door, demand that they get it back, sue people, what'd they do? You received with joy the plundering of your property knowing that you have for yourself a better possession 
and an abiding one. Joy. Hebrews 12.11, when the Lord disciplines you, just like when your parent disciplined you as a child, joy, Hebrews 12.11, is the outcome of receiving the Lord's discipline. Hebrews 2.2, the Lord Jesus Christ endured, as we sang about, the wrath of God on the cross because of the joy that was set before Him. And right here in verse 17, you can give joy to your pastor. God is calling you to see to it that your pastors are not grieved by watching over your soul, but rather that they derive joy in caring for you. And it's because of this verse that I've had. I've heard so many who, who preached on it refer to the local church as, I love one pastor's phrase, the happiest place on earth. Now, when God tells you to let your pastors watch over your soul with joy, you've got to understand this. And I'm trying to be very subdued in even the way I'm saying it because I'm not trying to rah-rah, pep rally you. I'm trying to get underneath you and show you what it looks like to really live for Jesus. To let them watch over your souls with joy does not mean be surfacy with them. Never let them know your sin struggles. It does not mean never divulge the real stuff you're walking through and who you really are. You're not giving anybody joy by being fake. God is certainly not intending for you to wear a mask as if everything's well when you're in the midst of turmoil. In fact, one of the chief joys of a faithful pastor, like the true shepherd, under shepherds derive great joy by entering into a burden, Galatians 6.2, so that our pastors might shoulder the load with us. That's why God gave them to us. So if you fake it until you make it, nobody's joyful. The word grief in verse 17 is literally the word groaning. Your pastors ought not groan under a burden of your unwillingness to share your life with them. It is actually burdening to a pastor when we appear like we got it all together. That's not joy-inducing. If you're unwilling to stay, you don't have to be somebody else. Just be you, but be the sanctified you. But, little secret, everybody's got miles and miles and miles to go in Christ's likeness. Everybody. So our pastors are assigned by God to be part of His economy. I don't know why He did it this way. He could have done it a trillion other ways. But in God's economy, He designed that our pastors come alongside us and help us take one more step forward in our pursuit of Jesus. But only if you're the real you. And it's so joyful. Oh, that's your sin struggle, sister. Thank you for confiding in me. I will definitely pray for you and try to help apply the Gospel with you. I can't do anything about where you've been. But my goodness, we can all move forward from where we're at. That's a joy. That's such a joy. Your pastors will suffer under groaning, verse 17, if you get recalcitrant in your sin, if you become stiff-necked and hard-hearted like Israel of the Old Testament, if you dig your heels in against every attempt your pastor makes to love you, look, it probably isn't always going to feel awesome. Who cares how we feel? We have put way too high a premium on how we feel. And when we sang it a minute ago, I sang it with all my heart. 
Because I do want to feel His Holy Spirit. Let me know that Thou art mine. That's when I'll feel the Holy Spirit. Our heart should follow our head. And yes, pastors need some thick skin because they often get it wrong. And their approaches may be well-intentioned, but they're not timed right, they're not coming off right, and they're herky-jerky too. And yeah, they need some thick skin, so when a church member they're trying to care for says, uh, it wasn't so helpful, they don't get all offended by that. But Sir Edward Denny's hymn captures it so well. Oh, give us hearts to love like Thee, like Thee, O Lord, to grieve far more for others' sins than all the wrongs that we receive. The text teaches us that allowing our leaders to watch over our souls with joy is, verse 17, to your advantage. It's so good for us. It's so good for us when we allow our pastors to derive joy in their care for us. Philip Edge Kim Hughes said, Christian leadership is intended by God for the advantage of all, not just for the advantage of those who hold positions of authority. Good and successful leadership is to a considerable degree, I love this, you ready? Good and successful leadership is to a considerable degree dependent on the willing response of obedience and submission on the part of those who are under authority. If you're unwilling for somebody to care for you, I have met so many people through the years say, oh yeah, that church stuff, not for me. Institutionalized religion is an invention of the Western... What? How do you obey verses like this? The fourth and final word of instruction to church members is pray for your leaders. I got too many pages of notes on this, so God help me summarize. <laughs> There's an old saying, and I think that it might be inspired. It's somewhere in 1 Hezekiah chapter 42. Uh, <laughs> it's not biblical. There's no such book. But there is an old saying that is so true. Everyone loves you until you start leading. You know some of the most hateful, hateful things I've ever experienced have come from the mouths and the actions of church people. Everybody loves you until you start leading. Because, of course, they all have it perfectly figured out. And if they were in charge, they would do it the right way. Everybody loves you until you start leading. That's why I believe the author says in verse 18 and 19, pray for us. Pray for us. You want to know something that's impossible? It's impossible to simultaneously pray for a man and hate him. You cannot be embittered against a person that you pray for. You can only want their best. You can only want God's best in their life. Or else you're not really praying. You can't have a hard-hearted, embittered spirit against somebody that you're interceding for. That's why William Law, the Puritan, said you'll never love a man so much as when you pray for him. That's why the author says in verse 18 and 19, pray for us. Verse 19, I urge you all the more to do this. When our expectations for our pastors are unbiblical, and my goodness, do we not live in the consumeristic age of church? What's your favorite stuff at church? What does your family need? I'll tell you what your family needs. J-E-S-U-S. -S. That's what you need. At the last day, it is not going to be awesome that uh, you had a church that had so many bells and whistles that, uh, you know, really fit your needs. What? Pray for us. If you have expectations for pastors that are unbiblical, then uh, I sure hope we disappoint you. 
but I sure hope that you don't get embittered against us. It's impossible to pray for a man and hate him. It can't be done. Hebrews 12 talks about how one root of bitterness in one member of a church can destroy the whole thing. You get embittered against somebody, you let it fester, we're sitting duck. This will be the enemy's playground. But if you'll pray, God will show up. It's actually one of the most accurate thermometers of our spiritual temperature. We have a bunch of thermometers at our house. I don't know how we got so many of them. And uh, you can, you know, you got all kinds. And you can put them in different places and supposedly get more and more accurate. But the most accurate, I think, thermometer of your spiritual temperature and mine can be gauged by how we pray for our pastor. Again, I don't know why God chose to do it this way. But in God's economy, He is pleased to use our pastors as pipelines for our spiritual progress. Translation, if you want to grow in the faith, it will show up in how you pray for your pastors. That really gives us a gauge of our spiritual temperature. Allow me to say it again clearly. I hope that church members, you will always remind us to say this when somebody joins. We, we publicly want to say something like this, your pastors will fail you. We will disappoint you. We will not always make the right decisions. We deeply, deeply, deeply regret that. In turn, when we do dumb things or wrong things or sinful things, you're going to be tempted to be suspicious of our love for you. You're going to read into our actions or be tempted to read into our decisions because they're not always going to be perfect. But to protect your own heart and mind from becoming the enemy's playground, you must remain vigilant in your prayers for us. This is a preservative for your own soul. And it's a powerful blessing for the souls of your pastors. That's why God's telling us as church members we should pray for our leaders. I find this so encouraging. The little pray for us. By the way, it's plural. Pray for us. Plurality of, of, of leadership. But I find it so encouraging because you do know, don't you? Chapter 3, 6, 9, and 12, he pointed out their sin. He straight up told them they were wrong. Can those two things coexist in your world? Can somebody tell you that you're wrong and you still love them and you still pray for them? And I like to say about Tracy and I, we are in love, but we're also in like. We like being together. I like her still. Can somebody tell you you're wrong and you still want to be with them? You do know what he asked them to pray, right? That we get to come to you. Like the guy who called out your sin in chapter 3, 6, 9, and 12. The guy who told you you're wrong. Pray that I'll get to come see you. Can that coexist in your world? And not only that I'll see you, but I'll see you soon. God's great heart in verse 16 is moved to pleasure by our obedience. And in verse 18, His hand is moved to action by our prayers. P.T. O'Brien said the author is suggesting that their prayer will restore Him to them more quickly than if they did not pray. God does stuff when you pray. He actually does stuff. I've got a confession to make. Uh, number one, this sermon's not ending at 1130 <laughs> 
<laughs> Number two, um, I got a confession. When you ask me to pray for you, I might forget. And I don't want to forget, but I confess that I do not always pray for the people that I say I'm going to pray for, and I don't like that, and I understand, and I'm learning. God help me to uh, remember to actually pray for people I say I'll pray for. So now if you ask me to pray for you, we may do right then and there what uh, Trey Davis and I did this week standing out in the rain in my backyard uh, when we were talking about prayer needs. We didn't even go in the house. We better pray right there because I don't even trust myself to get on the porch before I forget. So if it's raining, we might get wet. We just need to pray right there. But may I make a sincere request of you? And may I sincerely ask that you not forget to do this? Pray for us. Pray for us. Please pray for us. And please pray that we'll get to spend sweet time together soon. Encouraging one another in the Lord and laying up treasures in heaven. Several commentaries suggest that the reason the author said, pray that I'll get to come quickly, is maybe he also was in prison for his faith. But instead of writing to them, his heart's desire was actually to come to them and talk about the glories of Christ together that he had written about for 13 chapters. To get to engage together about the fact that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and possesses the nature of God and sits at the right hand of the throne of God and he's also the same one who made purification for our sins and is our mediator and our high priest. He probably wanted to talk about that kind of stuff when they got together. So I make a sincere request, and I'm asking, don't forget, pray for us. And I lump myself in that. We should pray for our spiritual leaders. Well, God's instruction to church members are those four. Obey, submit, allow your pastors to watch over your soul, open yourself up to them, and pray for them. But God also has instructions for the church leaders, the pastors, and that's also fourfold. Pastors are to keep watch over our souls because we are entrusted to them by God. They are to keep a good conscience, as Asha prayed a moment ago, through honorable conduct. They are to pursue being with the saints in person, face to face. And number four, they are to prepare to give an account to God. Now again, I pray that God will guide me because we got more material here than we should probably cover. But I think a lot of the sermon was preached by the Holy Spirit during the prayer time. Pastors. It's amazing to me that all of these instructions are aimed at the pastors. Each one of them have massive implications for every Christian. Like the elder qualifications. Don't we want every man in Christ to look like that? Of course we do! These assignments from God are applicable to us all. They certainly have implications. What are they? Number one, pastors are to keep watch over the souls that are entrusted to their care by God. There's actually accountability in that statement for both the pastor and the church member, so let me take them in that order. The accountability of the pastor, keep watch over the souls of the people. One of the strangest ranges of emotion that I experience, and admittedly pretty often, is the range of emotion that is both thankful and heartbreaking 
when I encounter a true saint, a person who knows and loves the Lord Jesus, who has been in Christ and knows the Gospel and has known Jesus for many years, some cases longer than I've been alive, but they remain so obviously malnourished in the faith. And I've had that experience so many times. Precious believers whose conversion I'm not suspicious about, who've been in the faith for a good while, but biblically speaking are more immature than a lot of new converts that I've known. And though it's joyful to me any saint, it is also burdening at the apparent loss, the wood, hay, and stubble of a lifetime of being undernourished. And my mind wonders, how many times is this owing to unfaithful pastors who never took the time and energy to try to know and pray for and seek to encourage these dear ones in the Word of the Lord? Now, I asked at the beginning of the sermon, what keeps you awake at night? Paul wrote to the whole church of Ephesus, Ephesians 6, with all prayer and petition at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert. Literally, stay awake. Stay up at night. With all perseverance and all prayer for all the saints, you need to be losing some sleep too when you see somebody limping along in the faith. The word in Hebrews 13, 17 to the pastor, keep watch over the souls is literally go sleepless. P.T. O'Brien explains the verb literally means not only be alert, but go without sleep. Page 529, pillar commentary on Hebrews. And so now, I can't wait for my next discipleship meeting on Wednesday. I want to tell those brothers, scratch that prayer request. It's okay to lose a little sleep. New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce, quote, leaders are accountable for the spiritual well-being of those placed in their care. No wonder they lost sleep. The word for keep watch has the etymological sense of chasing away your sleep. Faithful pastors are, quote, the type that stay awake for your souls. Kent Hughes, who pastored for a long time, says, the idea in this verse is that some of the leaders of this church had lost sleep over certain people in the congregation. Thomas Aquinas, 1200s, country of Italy, showed that the same wording in this verse is the exact same wording with different endings on the words in Luke chapter 2, when the shepherds kept watch over their flock by night. So many so-called pastors, the word poimen in Greek literally means shepherd. It's translated pastor or something like it. So many so-called pastors are going to be so painfully silent on the day of judgment because they didn't live in the sheep pen. They didn't get to know the spiritual whereabouts of the flock. They might have fancy ministries today and according to man's standards and measurements, they look very, very, very successful. But the operative question from God for pastors is are you Acts chapter 20, verse 28, shepherding the flock of God among you? Hugh Latimer, born in 1487, one of the great preachers of the English Reformation, said, now these shepherds, Hebrews 13, I say they watch the whole night. 
They attend upon their vocation. They do according to their calling. They keep their sheep. They run not hither and thither, spending their time in vain and neglecting their calling. I would wish that clergymen, curates, parsons, vicars, bishops, and all other spiritual persons would learn the lessons of the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 and in Hebrews chapter 13, which is this, to abide by their flocks and their sheep to tarry among them, to be careful over them, not to run hither and thither about their own pleasure, but to tarry by their beneficences and feed their sheep with the food of God's Word. Paul Washer shares a powerful illustration. And for those of you who have daughters, I will personalize it to you. Let's imagine that you fathers of daughters go on a long journey and you leave your precious little one in my care. And while you're gone... You give me some very specific instructions about how to watch over and how to provide and how to protect. And then when you come back from your journey after many, many years and many, many decades, you find that I've painted her up and dressed her like a prostitute. And I've made her look like the worst of the world. Do you think that you'll be very happy with me when you return? Oh, what might God do to those who prostitute His Son's bride for selfish gain? Oh my goodness. The reason I lose sleep at night, and I'm not trying to break my arm and pat myself on the back, I'm telling you right now, I wish I could go to sleep on Monday night. But the reason I lose sleep at night is because I believe this verse. That I'm going to stand before the Almighty for the sake of the souls of God's people. One of the greatest blessings for God's people in any generation our faithful elders and pastors, and conversely, one of the greatest curses that God can send on any generation are hirelings who lie about God. Just go ask Ahab in the Old Testament what the consequence is of having 400 preachers who lie to you about God. But I want you to understand something, church family. And I speak now as a member, not only as a pastor. God does not mince words about what He's going to do to preachers and pastors and shepherds who do not care for the flock. And He also does not mince words about those in the flock who will not let the shepherd care for them. Ezekiel 33.8, When I say to the wicked, God speaking, O wicked man, you will surely die. And you shepherd, do not warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man will die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But what if the pastor is faithful? Ezekiel 33.9 But if you on your part, under shepherd, warn the wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your life. It's not always the preacher's fault that the people won't be cared for. In Hebrews chapter 3, God commands the whole church, absolutely every member, without exception, to take care lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and to make sure of it that not one church member has an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. God demands you, He commands you on the authority of His risen Son to encourage every member every day as long as it is called today so that not one of you will be hardened by sin. Guess where that kind of culture flourishes? 
Guess where that kind of gospel relationship happens and where you don't lie to people when you go over to their house for dinner about how you're doing. Guess where the gospel flourishes? In a church where pastors take this call seriously, members allow the pastors to care in this way, and then the whole church is constantly learning to gospel each other. Guess what? You got pastoral confidence here. Nobody's airing your dirty laundry. But I can generalize and say, I hope you're open enough with people around here to understand that even the person talking to you, and probably especially the one talking to you, everybody here is messed up. Everybody. Nobody's got it all together. P.T. O'Brien, godly leaders are diligent and tireless. They look after the lives of all in their care, but particularly those who are negligent to prone and prone to spiritual laziness who fail to recognize the importance of fellowship with other believers. That's a good way to bring grief to your pastor. Not only watch over, not only allow yourself to be watched over, but pastors are to keep a good conscience with the saints through conducting themselves honorably. Verse 18, we have a good conscience. The Gospel is so good. The good news is so good. I didn't know this until I was 19 years old, but you can have a clean conscience in front of God. You can know for sure that you have the knowledge of sins forgiven. Your conscience can be clean. But I love that that also impacts us horizontally. Verse 18, we're all tempted to second guess whether somebody loves us. I mean, our brother just talked about leaving the nest of his parents' oversight when he goes off to college. He knows his parents love him, and even in the best of homes and situations, we're all tempted, like, can they really, really, really love me? Do they just love me because they love loving me? Or do they love me? We're all tempted to second-guess people's love. And I love that the writer says, I'm telling you the truth right now. And I know you're suspicious to think because I call out your sin, I'm not going to tolerate your disobedience. And because I tell you, when you don't show up at church and you don't let anybody know, you are disobeying God, Hebrews 10.25. I'm telling you about your sin, and I'm telling you with a clear conscience. I love you. I'm conducting myself, myself honorably in the sight of God. This is what it looks like to live with integrity in front of Jesus and in front of you. I love that even though they... Many com- the commentaries explode on this. I have a clear conscience. Why? Because they don't think you love them. Because you're always telling them the truth. So they're going to be suspicious of whether or not you love them. And they're not going to open up to you. So why don't you just put a little note in there in verse 18 of chapter, th- uh, chapter 13. I have a clear conscience. At the end of the day, the Lord knows that I love you. And He knows that though our best effort is a C-, minus, we might hit C- plus every blue moon. God knows that the motivation is gospel love, clean conscience. Pastors are also third to pursue time with the people. That's why he says, pray with us that we may come to you. Now you may listen to some pretty awesome podcasts, but those people are not your pastor. And if you go to a gigantic church, God can certainly be glorified, but if your pastor doesn't know your name, he's also not your pastor. He's got to be with you. Jesus taught in John 10 that a hired hand will run away from you in a time of trouble, but a true shepherd will run toward you. 
A key part of living the Christian life is just being together, Hebrews 10.25. That's why I said earlier, and I didn't stutter, if you just skip church, that's as strange to me as me not showing up. And if it seems more strange for you, for me to just be MIA, than it does seem for you to be MIA, then I don't know what Bible you're reading, because I'm a church member too. I'm just a different part of the body today. An eye, a hand, a foot, but we need everybody. And it's so encouraging when we get together. And that's why he says, pray that we can come to you. Pray that we'll be with you. Pray that we'll be together. Because the Spirit loves to dance when the saints are together. Finally, as in the book of Philippians, finally, uh, pastors will give an account for the souls entrusted to their care. For they will give account. They will give an account for your soul. Charles Simeon, under the fearful responsibility, faithful pastors watch for souls trembling through their ignorance, through their sloth, through their cowardice, they might withhold the truth from the saints. Or, they might not talk about the means of salvation profitably. They might not dispense to the people of God what they ought to dispense unless they will tremble under the awareness that they will give an account to God. Pastors that responsibly undertake this office, Charles Simeon, Charles Simeon they know that if any perish through their neglect, the blood of those who perish will be required at their own hands, Ezekiel 3.17. That's precisely the reason. In that back room last Sunday, when the service got out and the teenagers gathered for our very last rooted class on systematic theology, I preached the gospel to those teenagers and I begged them to give their life to Jesus. I pled with them. I can't even stomach the thought of them going off to college not knowing Christ. I'm begging you, I'm begging you to come to Jesus. And one day, I'm going to stand in front of His lovely face and He's going to ask me about you. You've heard it said that you should live a life that won't require your preacher to lie about you at your funeral. God help us, we're not going to lie about anybody. I'm not preaching anybody into heaven. And I've done funerals of lost people. Have you ever thought of what's going to be said of you not only at your funeral, but more importantly, by your pastors on your day of judgment. There are three witnesses that are going to rise up for you. Number one, your profession of gospel hope. Ephesians 4.13, everything you've ever done is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of God with whom you must give an account. The gospel alone is your only hope in front of God. You must turn from your sin. You must put your faith in Jesus. You must believe that His blood and righteousness is enough to atone even for wicked you. And you must give yourself to His risen majesty as His obedient subject. You must believe that message. And your profession of faith will rise as a witness on your day of judgment. As will, number two, your works. 2 Corinthians 5 teaches very clearly that each man will be recompensed according to his deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. That's why Kent Hughes said, the Bible teaches that we will stand before the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, 
Believers will not stand in judgment for their sin. Praise God, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's not a maybe so, maybe I'll make it through. It's not that kind of judgment. Salvation is a free gift, but the works of believers, Kent Hughes, will be judged, 2 Corinthians 5.10. But what's the third witness? I have no idea why God decided to do it this way. But the third witness is going to be your pastor. His word. It's literally logon. Logos, he's going to say words on your account. The phrase in verse 13, 17 is gospel ministers will be in very, very high demand on that day. You're not going to be looking for your auto mechanic or your accountant. You're going to be looking for your pastor on that day. And he's going to be called forward to give a gospel affirmation of your gospel embrace and your gospel living in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we fence the Lord's table here every Sunday. We take the supper every Sunday. Today we'll take it in the members meeting. If I ever finish the sermon, you patient people. But every Sunday we say, you must be a believer because it's not my table, it's Jesus's. You're going to sit down with Jesus? You're going to sit down with the bloody Jesus who paid for your salvation by Himself. You also must be turning from all known sin lest you die, 1 Corinthians 11. And third, you must be an active member of a gospel-preaching church. We say that every week. It's printed in the bulletin on days we take the supper because if you can come here for six months every Sunday or hit and miss and take the supper with us, in what sense are you an active member of some other church? No, 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 no. no. Who's your pastor? I didn't say whose podcast you listen to. I'm asking you, who is your pastor? Your pastors are going to give account for your soul. And when the pastors of this church stand to give account for the precious souls of the people he's entrusted to our care, don't you want, and I, I trust you already know this, your pastors are going to say, dear Lord, where should I begin? Where should I begin? I got buckets and buckets full of gold, rubies, and precious stones. When I was sitting there during the prayer time, and we sang the church's one foundation, which is why I said, let's sing it again in the members' meeting when it's only the saints that I know are saints because I've talked to them about the gospel. Let's sing it there. And, and tears, I don't cry often, but the tears were coming down my eyes because I thought of two brothers and two sisters. I thought of David Algie coming over to me in the hallway of Bridges and saying, chapter 2 of Desire of God happened to me. Chapter 2 of Desire God's about conversion. I said, when can we meet? He said, I'm a medical resident. I have no idea why we tell our doctors to work 30 hours without sleep and then do something good for us. But that brother had to be at work at like 4 o'clock in the morning. So we met at 3 o'clock in the morning in the courtyard at Methodist Hospital to talk about the new birth. I was just thinking last week about, I was thinking about Eric Bieber sitting in my living room a couple years ago and he said, looking at the prospect of a lung transplant. This man might die tomorrow. And he said, he said, I want to be with Jesus. I want anything else in all the world. And I thought, oh, Jesus, when I stand before you to give an account for these brothers, where do I start? I can't wait to give an account for some of you. I was thinking about Laura Donovan. I said to her in February of 2007 when her daughter died, and she said... Jesus is sweeter to me right now than he's ever been. And I said to her, 
If there's one real Christian in this whole church, it's Laura Donovan. But I also remember, and I say this with, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to smooth you. I wish I couldn't cry right now. But I remember sitting in a coffee shop for two hours begging somebody not to deny the faith. I was saying to this girl, please, please, don't you know that this is real? The veracity of the resurrection is not a hope. So there were 500 people who saw Jesus alive. They wrote a letter while those people were still living. You could go ask them. 11 of the apostles died for their profession of faith saying that they saw him. Do you think that this is a myth? And she wouldn't believe. And how is this begging her? You can't leave the faith. And if God doesn't restore her, I'm going to give an account for her too. Christian leaders are those who will have to give an account to God. Philip Edgecombe Hughes. This solemn consideration should affect not only the quality of their leadership, but also the quality of the obedience with which Christian individuals in the community respond to their leadership. You'll find out pretty quickly if a pastor believes this verse. Because if you can show up and get your consumeristic need met and leave and nobody ever talked to you about the gospel, they might be doing a lot of things well, but they're definitely not a pastor. Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord. My joy and my crown. 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Philippians 2, hold fast to the word of life so that on the day of Christ I will have reason to glory about you. I'm on page 29 of 33. So we'll stop here. There's so many things. The deeper you go in the Christian life and into the Word of God and with the people of God, there's so many things that should motivate us to obedience. But one of them that's got to be tied for first is the incentive. It's stated negatively. This would be unprofitable for you if you, if, if you're, if you cause your pastor's grief instead of allowing them to derive joy and caring for you, it would be unprofitable for you. You can put that in the positive. It would be very, very, very advantageous for you. That's why the title of the sermon is Benefit by Being a Joy to Lead. Benefit. This is all to your advantage. This is God totally setting us up for success. This is how to live the happy life. This is what it's like to live in God's world, God's way. If you seek nothing but your own benefit, Charles Simeon, you should, by a loving, submissive, and obedient spirit, encourage the efforts of your pastors and impart comfort to their souls. What a faithful minister will be able to enjoy on the day of judgment is more than can be articulated with earthly words. Hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory. The members will know what I'm talking about. I'll skip all the notes I've written about it, but this is precisely why we do Tend My Lambs. Today I'll have my fourth and fifth Tend My Lamb talk this week. 
and I added up yesterday how many I've had this year. And before I go again, breaking myself, breaking my arm, pat myself on the back, it's just over 40 since January. I was reminded of a book that was written 350 years ago by Richard Baxter who made it his ambition to visit every home in his parish every year to care for the souls of the people. And he did it. Some years I've heard 1,200 visits a year. Are you kidding me? I told our pastoral residents who wrote into Grace with Love, which is written because 2 Thessalonians is in the Bible, and we love you, we want you to prosper the faith. And last month we wrote about the brothers in our church, some of them who feel called to gospel ministry. And I told those men, I said, when you leave, if God sends you out of here to pastor a people or to serve in some gospel ministry context, you're getting a tattoo. And it says, we may let them get a t-shirt, but it says, uh, we make house calls. That's it. I think you can put all of pastoral theology down to that little statement. We make house calls. Will you let people care for you? Would you let pastors care for you? Will you let them do that? Because God says, let them do it. And let them do it with joy. Don't let them do that with grief because that would be unprofitable for you. And if you're suspicious about whether or not they really love you, they got bad ideas too. And their, their approaches are going to come off as heavy-handed sometimes when they got the best intentions. Because they don't, I, think, I think 10 my lambs is a C-. minus. I think it used to be a D-. minus. I think C- is about as good as it'll get. Maybe a little better. I don't think that's perfect. I just think it's a way to be constantly engaged with the people. Two or three times a year, you'll have a sit-down conversation with one of your elders to find out your spiritual whereabouts and know how to pray for you. Man, if that seems harsh or hard, the methods may be clunky. The intentions, I assure you, clean conscience before God are loving. So will you let people care for you? And will you let them do this with joy? Because that will benefit you so much now and forevermore. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, pray that you would erase from our mind anything I said that was wrong, and you would elevate in our mind anything I said that was right. And we pray that you would get much glory in causing us to live as a redeemed people in covenant community together called Grace Church. And if any among us are outside of Christ or believers who are not united to a local church where they're held accountable and encouraged in the faith, then God, we pray that You would lead the unbelieving to true saving faith, genuine conversion, the new birth, and we pray that the, the believing would be united to a church where they, will, where they will be taught to obey the Word of God and Lord, we pray for this church that you would purify us as we encourage each other day after day, not allowing anybody to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We pray for our pastors, God, that you would encourage the men to be faithful. We pray for our church family that you would make us all receptive to pastoral care. And we also ask that you would go way beyond our efforts because our best ideas are 
some good, some weak, some bad. We're trying to figure it out, Lord, but we do want to do what we see in your word. So cause us to be faithful that way. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.